Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Determination, Deliberation, and Dragons. On today's episode, we're gonna talk about my third story in my series of stories about Pana and Wave Skimmer the Dragon. And I think we're gonna be looking at it through this theme of perception. And when we talk about perception, we're kind of referring to the idea of characters and this community perceiving certain aspects of their lives and the things around them in ways that don't exactly line up with reality. So just kind of broadly talking about perception and safety and the ways in which it affects people and community. And in order to talk about this topic, Izzy's gonna first introduce us to the book, The City of Ember. City of Embers? I'm forgetting. No, it's City of Ember. Hi, everyone. It's a book that Peter and I have both read, but both have pretty spotty knowledge, uh, spotty memory of. I read it in elementary school. It's a classic, I'm sure, for a lot of you listeners. Um, dealing with a post-apocalyptic world where these people live in an underground city called the City of Ember, because, uh, and the book is um, The City of Ember by Jean Duprow. And basically they're starting to get worried because they kind of light the entire underground city with a bunch of light bulbs and light fixtures and they're running out of light. I forget if it means they're running out of light bulbs or if they're running out of power, but basically the city's kind of gradually growing dark and they're also running out of just resources in general because they've been living off of food and cans and you know, basically living in a bunker for 200 years that's the size of a city. So the main protagonists have to figure out, they think, well, maybe we'll just like find a new light source or we'll find a way to keep the lights running and keep the lights on. And eventually they realize that, whoa, there's a whole world above like our city. We didn't realize there was stuff above ground. And they convince their people in their city to leave when they find an exit, or I'm pretty sure they do that in the end of the first book. It's a, it's a trilogy, so I have not read the whole trilogy, but the story continues in their adventures above ground after the first book. But it is a lot about perception of, um, you know, the children who grew up in the underground city not like thinking, this is normal, this is the way reality is, living underground. The light's kind of being so, so spotty versus adults remembering when the lights were brighter and things were a little bit better, but people not really being ready to do anything about it until these ch the two children who are the main characters decide to do something. And so fitting back into the per uh, perception theme, really thinking about how do we perceive where we live in and, you know, is it safe to keep living underground? Which originally it was safer because the, I suppose, nuclear apocalypse had just happened. But clearly over time it became the lesser of the two options and people just weren't quite ready to go back to living above ground. Yeah, so just kind of thinking about it as this place where everyone is... Initially, they go there to hide, but it becomes their home, and they don't realize the dangers that they face by staying there. And then, yeah, I mean, again, if we're remembering it correctly, <laughs> the two main characters kind of discovering, hey, we are going to run out of these light bulbs, and like, we need to leave in order to survive. So that whole kind of just idea, um, and like the, the setup of this city that collectively imagines itself to be this safe haven away from the dangers of whatever like history they remember um which i don't remember like the their stories that they tell of the past and how they came to be in this underground city but it is very reminiscent of my story that we're going to workshop so 
I think moving on, let's just briefly describe what's happening in my story. And just a reminder, you'll be able to listen to the story. We will read it for you and post it along with this episode. So if, um, if you're confused while we're talking and while we're workshopping it, feel free to go and look into that so you can know what we are discussing. But to, just to summarize briefly, so in the last story, Pon and Waveskimmer went to a mountain that they discover is actually a city. So like snow has accumulated over the city for, for many years. And they find like this magical stone thingy that supposedly has some sort of power to like bring humans and animals and nature together and save the world. So this kind of opens up their, this story opens up and they're trying to figure out like, what, what is this? How do we use it? So like Pana's trying to just do some things with it. And they are discovering this whole new world and they're learning about trees and the forest and dirt, which is pretty cool. And then they eventually find this house that's just in the middle of the woods. And the house is basically made of all these trees that kind of came together into like this house shape, but it's all like natural. And Pana, they decide to spend the night there, but not inside the house, like outside of it, waiting for whoever they think might live there to show up, just in case someone does live there. And then in the middle of the night, Pana like sees this vision of these eyes that are like moving through the forest. So they decide to go into the house just to spend the night in a safer environment. And then they wake up and they find this dog that's just like standing over them. And Pana kind of likes the dog and is imagines it to be this friendly creature. And Wave Skimmer is like freaking out and he keeps trying to like snap at the dog and like growling at it. And they get into this sort of argument and Pana is telling Wave Skimmer to, to be kinder. And then they follow the dog to this valley sort of thing, to like this crater. And they find a village in the crater. And there's like this green fluid thing that's kind of going through and this, the ground itself is very unstable. So the fluid isn't like moving very fast, but it like is pushing all of the ground and like the dirt just to the side as it moves and like forming new channels every couple minutes. So this community had to develop in a way that they can like easily move out of the way when the river changes course. Everyone is like wearing these, um, these cloths to kind of prevent the toxins from the river and like affecting them. Wave Skimmer is still freaking out with the dog. Um, and he's like growling at the dog. And then the people that they meet in the village are like, no, this dog is like our guardian. He like protects us. And Pana's like, cool. And Wave Skimmer is like, growl. So they get into some disagreements there. And Wave Skimmer ultimately is told to stay outside of the village. And Pana is invited in. So they split up. And Pana doesn't feel great about it. But they're like, we need to go and like meet the people and discover the world. So they go in. They they learn more about the village, and the village is the the head villager person is like, oh, we live here to avoid the dangers of the outside world, and Pana's like, you live next to a toxic river that changes course like every couple minutes, and the villager is like, well, it's still safer than out there, without understanding like what anything is actually like beyond the crater, and then ultimately there's this showdown sort of thing that happens between Pana and the dog. We find out that the dog is not a guardian, but it's this weird, like, shadow demon thing that is, like, trying to just steal people's souls or something. I'm not even entirely sure yet. It read to me more like the life force. The life force? Yeah, similar, same thing, almost. But it's like, yeah, so like the dog is there, but it's on like this other like spectral dimension thing where like its true form kind of appears and you realize like Wave Skimmer has been seeing that true form the whole time 
So Panda's out there like, oh, this is a dog. And Waveskimmer's like, oh my gosh, scary, like, monster thing. So Waveskimmer was right the whole time. And Waveskimmer ultimately comes and, like, saves Panda. And the villagers all realize, like, hey, we really should leave. This place is, is insanely dangerous. And this guardian who we thought was, like, trying to protect us is actually the scary thing that was trying to keep us here for generations. So that's essentially the premise of the story. And yeah, we're going to workshop it a bit and just talk about the ways in which the different characters in the community perceive the world and ultimately have to, to face the reality that actually exists. So I guess first thing, Izzy, just any <laughs> initial impressions? Yeah, I mean, I think the contrast between the dog's physical form and the form that's described, you know, at the climax of the story at the end, it really is interesting because it's like a little dog missing a chunk in its ear and it's just unassuming and just average, normal, a little roughed up versus giant spectral shadow monster um which honestly i think you could have even spent a little bit more time just describing it and reveling in scary descriptions a little bit more even because there's only the one scene where pana really sees it for what it is and then it poofs it the stone kind of absorb the magic stone that they got in the previous chapter absorbs it and you're like oh i guess it's gone or stuck in the stone we don't really know yet but i thought that you know going with perception you know dogs in a lot of cultures around the world dogs are you know man's best friend seem to be really friendly and approachable but clearly this was just a disguise meant to fool people even Pana, who had never met a dog before, was like, but dogs are supposed to be friendly. Which I think was a, an interesting choice to think that um, Pana had never met a dog but had been told stories that dogs were nice. I think that's an interesting carryover from whatever previous culture their people came from before that they knew dogs were good. Because, of course, this is a post-apocalyptic story, so dogs were domesticated and were pets before Pana's people showed up with recovering from the apocalypse. But I do think it's interesting how certain things have been carried over and certain perceptions have ch definitely changed, like thinking, let's live in this pit with radioactive goop. It's safe. So some perceptions have definitely changed because of the apocalypse. And then certain things like dogs being... Uh, still thinking of dogs in like the domesticated sense and still thinking of them as like a friendly companion to humans have still carried over so yeah yeah I mean I think that's super interesting and like I mean as I was writing I'm not going through and thinking like oh I think that this idea carried over from the past world pre-apocalypse but it's interesting seeing just some of the ways in which those naturally seem to carry over in the writing process. Because, like, mm -hmm. obviously, there... I mean, there are authors who create entirely new worlds, and that's not really what I'm doing. I'm, you know, this is still Earth. It's after the apocalypse. But even in, like, entirely new worlds, you still have all of these ideas that are very similar to our own world. And... Just from a writing perspective, it's interesting seeing kind of what we as authors like expect from the world. So for me, it was kind of like, dogs are good. <laughs> um, <laughs> and just kind of inserting that into this new place. But I certainly just do love the idea of, of Pana with this dog. And I mean, the dog was a little bit creepy, I thought at times, but... <laughs> At the end of the day, like, it still looks like a dog and is still deserving of pets, even if it is the shadow monster thing. At oh, least in uh, the, you know, mind of, in the mind of Pana, at least, because 
you know, what what seemingly <laughs> what creature that seemingly looks like a dog isn't deserving of pets. So I don't know. Okay, I will agree to disagree <laughs> on that one. But yeah, I do think it's very interesting, like how you're saying in the writing process, or just like in the world of the characters, how different like culture does shape our perceptions of the world and of reality and how what cultural knowledge exists for Pana that they're drawing off of to interpret this whole new world that they're living in. Like they have dreams about the ocean, but they don't really know what the ocean is because they grew up on a sheet of ice. So figuring out a way to write that and explain different life experiences and different like cultural expectations that shape their perception on like it was a big thing of water <laughs> or it was a dog I'm pretty sure yeah I think I mean maybe moving forward like I want to be a little bit more deliberate about what ideas like I introduce and what Pana remembers from stories told by their village and elders and, and whatnot but I still think it's interesting even without really deliberately doing a lot of that work there are still some interesting things that like come across I did want to ask though did you did you see like the dog twist thing coming like were you initially distrustful of the dog or were you like completely fine with it well it's been a bit since I read it for the first time I've read it probably three times now, but I mean, it was described to have beady, like, I think the way the eyes were described is like black and opaque. You couldn't see into them. I think it was described as sort of like, this is a, a dog that's not necessarily man's best friend kind of dog. It's seen some things, um, but you don't know what. So I think I had, I did kind of pick up on it. Like it's not, it's more than it seems. And obviously Wave Skimmer has good instincts and he immediately didn't like the dog. I am thinking also of the perception. You did mention stories in this chapter that are told to Pana's people in the village where they came from. Um, in the very beginning, a side cut or I guess side story with um, the farmer that Pana stayed with briefly um, was being interrogated and was like, you know the stories about dragons, why aren't you afraid of them? And I am thinking, like, the diff like there is still the individual choice in how we, you know, we're not entirely socialized to see the world, we also, like, have our own opinions that we bring into it. And, like, the farmer and his children were like, yeah, we met a dragon, it was cool, but we're not gonna, you know, completely believe the stories we were told. Yeah. I, I forgot to mention that whole part <laughs> in my synopsis, but yeah, so, I mean, as Pana's traveling, there's this old friend of theirs from the village who's following them and goes in and, like, interrogates the farmer that Pana stayed with, and, oh, I, I totally forgot all about, like, the stories and things, but yeah, I mean, presumably... Not presumably, like, the, the farmer definitely heard about all these stories, but then, like, he meets Wave Skimmer, an actual dragon. So there is this shift in perception from his knowledge being solely based off of these stories and then going to actual lived experience, which is interesting. And totally something you hear a lot is, like, someone who likes to read, like, oh, you should go out and, like, live life more and not just you know experience life through books which you know valid point but i think it is really interesting just seeing how how naka the farmer his perception has kind of changed and what he's willing to do to protect pana and this and wave skimmer like a dragon after his brief interactions with them so yeah, there there is this idea of perception changing based off of experiences and from what you're told to what you you eventually come to learn as true. I mean, I feel like even like generationally, like how the needs of the present moment can force you to change your perception 
and not even necessarily like new experiences, but just like as I guess as knowledge builds up or as like circumstances change, thinking back to the city of Ember where the people who were just entering the city didn't think of it as the death trap. They thought of it as like the place, the safe haven from the mess that was the surface world. And then generations later, they were still taught to think of it that way. But increasingly that perception became more and more of a, an illusion versus, um, I guess, Pana being told the stories about dogs because they had been told stories about dogs being really nice and cuddly and then actually meeting a dog. And it's not a very cuddly dog. But, or Naka, a uh, better point would be, or Naka meeting the dragon and being told stories of how dragons eat people or I don't know what the stories were. They weren't specified. Probably bad. <laughs> yeah. And their needs at the moment were, you know, the world isn't the same place as it was when these stories were created. And the way I can take knowledge from these stories doesn't have to be dragons are bad, but like whatever the content of the stories is, I can, like finding a way to sift through and read the or read them or like learn from their knowledge in a more critical way, I guess. Yeah, I also just think it's interesting that you know, in this discussion of perception, we're not talking about individual perception as like coming from within the person necessarily, but coming from like all these outside, like the stories, experiences, the world changing. So perception as being closely tied to a lot of just external forces. Yeah. So there's probably some element of perception that is like internal. I'm not, I mean, I don't know psychology, <laughs> but definitely like this external thing, you know, again, as a geographer is just like super interesting to me at least. Yeah. I mean, I would feel inclined to say Naka was, you know, from what little we know of his character, I would say he's inclined to, you know, have a more open mind. Like he was the one who chose to leave his town in the first place or his village when nobody else had ever left in like ages. But the first outsider comes to their village, like, pretty much ever, and Naka's like, I'm up, let's go, I'm out. So I think that does show some, like, initiative on his part. Yeah, for sure. There is, and I guess, like, that does come from a slightly internal place, maybe, just because he's, like, so willing to listen to people. So, yeah, there's, perception is interesting. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to talk just a little bit about the actual village itself. So we did the dog. Mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. talked about Naka and his perception of dragons changing. Yeah. But this village, so we don't know exactly how they came to be there yet. Unless, I think I talked a little bit about that. And there was a few lines where the head villager was like, Oh, you know, we were outside of the crater for a while, and then we found this safe place. I don't remember if that is this story or story six, but essentially they they travel after the apocalypse, like throughout the landscape for a bit, and then they find this dog who brings them to the crater and they come to learn they come to know this crater as being like a safe space for them to live and survive after the apocalypse and we obviously learn that it is not so again there's like this green toxic fluid thing that's growing that's flowing through the landscape the ground i kind of imagine the ground as like being composed of really like flimsy cubes sort of so, like the dirt accumulates in like these cubic kind of things that are just like swept aside by the river and literally the houses are these like essentially tents made out of like cloth that as the river is changing course in like a moment's notice these people can just like pick up their homes and just like move so that they're not submerged in green toxic fluids. So it's not a very safe environment to live in. 
And we even see like someone almost fall into the river. So there's a lot of just danger that abounds there. I think there's, in my mind, just this conversation around being in this place and imagining it as safe and it not really being safe. And I'm just thinking of like the real world example of Buffalo, New York. Just this is very relevant, but <laughs> um, so my older brother goes to law school there and everyone he meets, all these people are like, oh, Buffalo is such a nice, like small, small town. It's so safe. Like, and when he tells them he's from closer to New York City, they're like, oh, how can you live in such a dangerous place? And he has to remind them, oh, Buffalo has like the highest murder rate in like the country or one of the highest murder rates. It's even more dangerous than places like not just New York City, but we imagine Bogota, Colombia is being the super dangerous place. And like Buffalo is actually much more dangerous and has a higher murder rate and like crime rate. So just this idea of like living in this place and being oblivious to the actual crime that exists within it and kind of like pushing that off and imagining that crime is existing elsewhere. I don't know if like I was necessarily thinking of Buffalo as I was writing this, but I just think that idea is like really interesting in how people come to know or how people come to think of their place as being the place that they perceive. Buffalo is a scary place. <laughs> I have never been, but I'll keep that in mind. But yeah, I think that's really interesting. And definitely my experiences with a place that I've been in do shape my perception of it versus if I don't know it at all, my surface level impression can be very different. And even like, well... None of my impressions ever are accurate to like whatever the objective fact is, but sometimes the surface level impression could be more or less accurate to whatever the quote unquote objective reality is compared to when I have greater familiarity with it, I am willing perhaps to say, my home is nice. There's much less wrong with it because it's my home and I know it so well, or going somewhere and being like, I don't know this place at all. It's terrible and I hate it. When it's probably not a terrible place, I might just be in a bad mood. Or I might just be lost and hungry and only showing up at places that end up being closed because I don't know where I'm going. And I only go to oh places my gosh, that are closed. DC. Yep. <laughs> There's one part of DC that um, mostly office buildings in the Restaurants are only open during the weekday for the office workers. So everything is closed on the weekend. It's not an awful place if you just know where you're going and you know what you're supposed to do. We did not. Yeah, when I visited Izzy, like, we had no idea. And we were just so confused. Or at least I was. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think knowledge can really shape perceptions. And whether, you know, if that knowledge is based in, like, factual evidence or if that knowledge is based in like you know emotional experiences can really play a big role in how you perceive your environment and your your place in that environment like the villagers thinking that toxic pit is a home because it has been their home for many generations and they've figured out really innovative ways to live in a really unforgiving environment and I can feel like somebody learning how to use one of those rock slings, feeling like a sense of agency and feeling like a little bit more at home because they have learned an, a specific adaptive skill that you need in order to live in that specific environment. And feeling like because they have that bit of knowledge now and that like experience that the place that they're living in is more of a home to them, even if objectively it's dangerous no matter what skills you learn. Like the woman who almost fell in the acid river. Yeah, I think the idea of like home and 
just being connected to that place is really interesting and how that impacts how we view other places too. I mean, just on my end, like I, I just went to Ecuador and like, I'm, I've been thinking about potentially going on a trip to Europe to visit a friend over the last couple months. And, you know, the things that I was told before going to Ecuador about, you know, watching out and it being super dangerous didn't really pan out to be true. Although, I mean, I didn't see a lot of Ecuador, so you never know. But where we were, like, I felt super safe and I loved meeting the people that I met there. And then also just with planning a potential trip to Europe, going on, like, the U.S. embassies sites and, like, seeing where there are travel advisories. And I was really just taken aback by all of these warnings about a bunch of countries in Europe, like, about there being these increased, like, threats of terrorism against U.S. citizens recently. And, I mean, maybe this is just coming from someone who, like, does a lot of critical geography, being, like, really taken aback and being like, but all the things that you list there, because, like, the embassy will, like, list everything, and thinking, like, oh, that doesn't even come close to any of the things that, like, we experience in the U.S. on a daily basis. So just this idea of, like, being super comfortable around my own home and kind of knowing where things are and kind of that connection sort of making us overlook some of the things that are less than ideal like in our own homes and around where we typically move and kind of just imagining these other places as being where all the actual dangers genuine genuinely exist which, you know, isn't necessarily true all the time and is certainly something that these villagers kind of deal with as they're, you know, as they tell Panna, like, they all perceive the outside world as being super dangerous and this place being the only place where they can live. To the point where they even, like, point out to Panna, they're like, all the villagers have, I think they have, like, green eyes or something just from all the toxins <laughs> that they continuously are exposed to. And the the head of the village is like, sure, we have these green eyes, but like, it's a far less, like, it's, it's a far fairer price to pay than like the, the horrors that you've been exposed to. And Pana's like, what? Like, wh what do you even mean? So there is this like weird disconnect between like, the group of villagers and Pan and and their knowledge, experience, and like connection to the world outside of the crater and the village that we see. I was actually curious about that line because it's never followed up with an explanation. So I was like, but what what is this person referring to? Because Pana like does a little mental checklist of like, well, I have got my legs and my arms and everything. Um and I just, I'm not sure what, because we also don't, don't spend a lot of time with these villagers, so I just am wondering what could have been meant by that comment. I think that's kind of the, the thing that I wanted you as a reader to come away from it thinking, <laughs> because at the end of the day, like, there is, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with Pana, and, like, Pana hasn't been exposed to any, like, toxins and they look just like a human and these villagers look just like humans but with their green eyes because of the exposure to the toxins and I think for me it was kind of like just this ridiculous notion kind of just going back to the people in Buffalo being like oh like how all the dangers that you face out like near New York City and so the villagers are kind of have that mentality and they're just like almost trying to come up with some excuse as to why they their crater village is like safer and like the head villager can't really clarify what what they mean by that and what actually might be wrong with Pana because there's nothing in the villagers like just trying to justify their stance mm -hmm. sort of okay 
Yeah, I was a little confused by that. I was like, this comment seems to come out of nowhere. That's because it does. <laughs> but I am interested. I have not checked any U.S. embassies' websites about um, traveling in in Europe. But what was on, what were they listing? Because I know, like, I mean, America, like, especially like, you know, crimes related to guns are like so frequent. So. I'm, I'm yeah. curious what the comparison was. Yeah, I was looking, um, I briefly was looking at Germany and the U.S. government was like, oh, like there's a heightened terrorist risk, risk in Germany. And they listed like, I think there was like three like terrorist attacks that they had like listed. Um, I think the last one was like in 2016 and it was a knife attack or something. Obviously, like not, don't take what I'm saying like as being a hundred percent true because I don't remember like the specific date and the specific crime but I just remember it was a while ago when I was planning this and I don't feel like checking right now but when I was looking it was very the the crimes were like very sparse and there was years of space between crimes and they weren't nearly as impactful harmful like there wasn't as many victims as like a typical daily shooting in the u.s so i just remember and like even a friend of mine was like oh like just be careful when you go and i was like i feel much safer like having checked the embassy's site and like looking at all the actual things that occurred i feel much safer <laughs> there right now so yeah and i i Again, like, I don't know if I necessarily tried to put that into this or if I was thinking about that as I was writing it, but this definitely reminds me of just looking at those those stats and, like, trying to plan a trip. I am just thinking of, like, if I was to travel by myself, I would definitely per at least perceive myself to be in more danger just because I don't know where I'm going. I potentially cannot speak the language. And just the unfamiliarity component would be like, I don't know which, you know, particular diner is safe to sit in at certain times or, you know, I might not be able to pick up on certain cues that someone who's native there would pick up on and navigate completely safely. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, like, again, it's even if the, the general area is much safer, like, it might be just your luck as someone who's not familiar with the area that you walk into a, like, the one bad place. Yeah. So. Which I think American tourists are kind of noted for being, like, clueless. Yeah, I mean, that too. <laughs> so. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, maybe these villagers just, like, are super comfortable living around where they do and like they've come up again like they have come up with clever ways of adapting and surviving yeah i mean pana lives on a bunch on a giant ice sheet which i personally also consider very harsh living circumstances i'm like why why don't you at least try to move south why do you why why does their village insist on just like staying living on an ice sheet they literally can't even grow things Oh, I didn't even think of that as a connection. And yeah, I'm remembering from the first story, you know, we find out that Naka is like the first person who ever left the ice village. And he's like, yeah, I was told as a kid, like, you can't leave, like, no one survives if they leave. And then he did it. And like, sure, he lost some toes on the way from frostbite. But he ultimately like, survived and found like a farm and lives in a place that like, is still freezing, but is less freezing. <laughs> so I didn't even realize that. Yeah, Pana also comes from this place of, of just denial about the circumstances in which everyone lives in. Mm -hmm. Or if not denial about the circumstances, at least like denial of the idea that they might be able to move and like have a better life somewhere else. There's like this connection to this one place that has been their home for generations. I just think of like the people up in Maine who put up with like five hours of sunlight during the winter. 
Maine gets very early sunsets and late sunrises in the winter. I was born there, but I have not lived there since I was a baby, so I'm very glad I didn't live in the land of very long winter. Well, imagine how they must feel when they hear about, like, my uncle in Alaska, <laughs> who's like, summer is like a month, and it's not even really summer. <laughs> yeah, there, I, there's those kinds of situations which are definitely not the same as living in an acid pit, but where it's like, it takes certain people, I would say, to find and th really thrive in those kinds of environments. Because definitely, I mean, tropical island living seems like everything would be easy and nice, but then there's actually tons of, you know, ways that you can get harmed living on a tropical island that you wouldn't think of. Like, you could get bitten by a spider or mosquito and disease or, you Even know, by just a shark. if you don't know how to swim, you're surrounded by water. Tsunamis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, da dangers abound. <laughs> yeah, so I do think there perception does change because I think of like going to Alaska horrible unless it's in the summer which would be less horrible it would be very beautiful but kind of really unforgiving uh, unforgiving natural environment but I guess it that's also because I'm just not the type of person who would thrive in that particular environment I like warm places I like a certain amount of sunlight on a regular basis but there are certain things in Alaska that you can't get anywhere else or up in Maine. Beautiful ocean and mountains too. I love Maine. It's beautiful. Could not live there in the winter. But I think it yeah. takes all sorts of people. And I suppose some of Pano's people, maybe not all of them, but at least some of them probably do genuinely thrive on the ice sheet. Well, I'm also thinking, too, just the difference between the two villages is, like, there's no, with Pana, at least, there's no, like, external force that's telling them, like, oh, you need to live here, like, things outside are dangerous, or just, like, gaslighting them on their experiences of living there, whereas this new village in the crater, they were led there by the dog creature who has, like, kept them there for all these years. So... I'm just thinking of the ways in which, um, you know, oftentimes it's not just like the environmental harms, like the natural challenges that people face, but it's also like if you live in a community where like in um, like a fracking company like will come through and like start start mining and like drilling for oil and stuff, and you'll be exposed to like all these harmful chemicals and the people living there will, you know, they'll they'll step up and say, like, hey, you know, we've all, like, been getting sick, and you're causing this, like, move move the fracking, like, to a different location, and oftentimes, like, the people who are conducting the fracking will be, like, oh, like, no, everything's fine, um, or I'm thinking also of, like, the lead pipes in Flint, Michigan, and just, like, authorities kind of denying that that was a problem, and in the Gulf, um, in the Gulf of Mexico today, like there, you know, there was an oil spill. Many, like, I think we were in elementary school. Mm -hmm. um, the big like BP oil spill. Oh yeah. And the so BP like instead of cleaning it up, they dispersed like they put a bunch of chemicals in that would like disperse the oil. But, like, those chemicals were also really harmful and carcinogenic. Right, so, like, people... that's what they did? That's, yeah, I mean, I think they probably did, like, some actual cleanup, too, but they also did that, and, like, um, but again, like, all the authorities are, like, gaslighting the people. It's, like, they'll go into clinics, and, like, there's not-for-profits who are doing work to, like, help make sure that everyone is, like, diagnosed and getting medical care that they need. And BP's like, oh, no, it's not the chemicals, like, we cleaned up everything. So, you know, just the, you know, these conversations change a lot when it's, when you're living somewhere by choice and you're experiencing these, these, uh, not obstacles, but like hardships, sort of, as opposed to when you're living somewhere 
and someone comes in and creates problems but tells you that these problems don't exist. Which, you know, I wasn't thinking of, like, bringing these two into conversation in this story. And, I mean, this happens all the time, as you can probably tell from now. A lot of these things that we were talking about, like, I never thought about as I was writing. But I definitely see that at least a little bit in how this dog kind of manages everyone and makes them think that they're safe in this environment in which they are not. It's literally toxic. Yes. And they wouldn't be living there if the dog didn't come in and be like, hey, this place is safe. I don't know how the dog communicated that to everyone. Probably just looked like a dog and they're like, dog friendly, just like Pana, and just like followed it. <laughs> Basically, like if you're experiencing things and like your entire community is like developing cancer and it's like everyone on your block, and you go to authorities and the authorities are like, there's not a problem. Just like, question them again. Like, keep questioning them. There's there's probably some sort of issue going on. Yeah. I would... Unfortunately, that it does happen far too often. We have stuff like that on Long Island. The We have... Um... Asbestos. Not just asbestos, we have this water plume. Oh. Um, basically, our water comes from the groundwater. There's like, there's three aquifers, one on top, like the one in the middle, which is what we primarily use, and then like one that just closed off. But we had this company that I keep forgetting the name of because it is like the same name as the drilling company that Uncle Vernon works at in Harry Potter. <laughs> Dunning so like, or something? Grunnings or Grummings. Oh, yeah. But, so the name isn't quite the same, but it's, like, super similar, and I just, like, keep forgetting it. But the company worked on building, like, the Apollo capsules that went up into space. And it was, like, managed by the, who was it, the military? But they ended up, a, a lot of, like, their waste product was toxic and ended up in the water. So there's this giant water plume that's just, like, moving the toxic chemicals like throughout Bethpage, New York on Long Island. Wait, what's a water plume? It's like, so underground you have the aquifer and you have water moving through the aquifer. And my understanding is it's just kind of like this channel of water. So like the, the chemicals aren't dispersed evenly throughout the aquifer. It's like this concentrated, like almost a river underground that's just moving and as it moves it's bringing all these chemicals with it. Oh, well, that sounds horrible. Yes, yeah, it's, it's not very great. And, like, the old company and the military, like, don't want to clean it up. Mm. Because they never do. So, yeah, these problems totally exist. And I think that's the moral of the story. It's, like, question, question your authority figures and, like, demand clean water and a clean environment to live in. And don't let any... any nice looking dogs tell you where to live <laughs> don't listen to the dog no pet the dog but that's it i think that new oscar movie which i have not seen um the power of the dog also probably has a similar well it's it's a bleak movie from what i know so it's probably similar don't trust the dog or dogs they're just doing their best except for this one I mean, this one is doing his best, but it's it's not in a good way. No, he's doing his best to do evil. Exactly. Oh, I also just wanted to point out the animals live in the river, because they were cute. They... I'm forgetting what they look like, though. I want to... I think I made them like platypuses, basically. Oh, I thought... Well, I was imagining some kind of strange otter. Or like otter, Yeah. Yeah, no, there's these creatures that, like, live inside the the toxic river thing. And I call them the doflas. I don't know why. I was thinking, um, in Greek we have this word pandofla, which just means sandal. And I don't know why I called them half of a sandal. Yeah, they have, like, this thick fur coat that is resistant to the toxic river. So they can survive there. 
and the people like make their they make like their clothing and their houses like out of out of their fur i think out of their fur yeah their hides yeah and they just have like excessive amounts of legs and tails so that they can swim super fast <laughs> that's not like an important thing i just I, I like animals and i thought it was fun to note okay so before we end we just want to share a line that we each found in the story that we thought was interesting or stood out to us in some way and then we'll just like talk a little bit about the line so izzy what did you find in here well you mentioned the other day that you had seen the lord of the rings or the second lord of the rings movie for the first time so when i was reading through this story before um we did our recording i remembered about the tree house that um not the tree it's not a house like when when i say tree house it's not like the thing made out of planks of wood it's like a tree like a bunch of different trees that come together to make a house that's in the lord of the rings in i think it's actually the first book that the elves live in and it's basically like a giant hall or no maybe it's the ents in the second book either way it's a how it's a hall like giant house the size of a hall when i say hall i mean like really big building like one long room that's like 30 feet or more tall whatever that's my idea of a hall very big room made of walls are trees literally and the roof is the trees meeting in the middle at the top so the line is while Naka's house had been built out of wood cut from a tree this house seemed to be woven from the trees themselves which is exactly what um the tree hall is in the lord of the rings and i just think it's a really neat example of you know fantasy architecture I love houses made of trees. So imagining this house um, gave me lots of joy. <laughs> Very fun. And I wish they had spent more time in the house. Yeah, I don't remember the Lord of the Rings one. But I don't know. I don't think I had any specific plans for this. I was just like trees coming together, making a house. And then they leave and it like never shows up again. But... <laughs> Maybe it has some interesting story. I don't know. I hope Maybe it does. To... It, it could. I could always go back and write something and give it that story. But right now it does not. That's okay. And that's just reminding me of like a... I don't remember if this was a tip someone gave me in writing or if this is something I heard somewhere else. But I remember hearing just this idea of throwing in like little details and things so it's not like every detail that you put in your story doesn't have to necessarily be thought through and advance the plot in some sort of way but the more details you put in even if it's just like things in the background or stuff that the character like sees but doesn't really get to explore they all kind of just add to the world that exists and that you're trying to build and then it gives you the potential to like go back and explore that more if you want to yeah fully agree i'm always a fan of um seeing good world building in what i read i was hoping the trees had the house made of trees had been made with magic but who can say maybe do you imagine it as looking more like a house that is like made of trees or like trees that like sort of resemble a house well it has a door but other than oh that, i forgot about that <laughs> other than that it doesn't really have much about it that's described so i'm imagining it as having you know maybe some gaps in i'm imagining like a collection of tree trunks that are all really close to each other 
then some, you know, uneven gaps where you can kind of call it a window, but it's not really a formal window. It's just a gap in the tree trunks at about eye level. And then there's the door that is, to me, just a big slab of bark or wood. But the rest of it just kind of looks like um, a sort of a tent shape that goes about. I'm thinking the apex would be about 20 feet high where the canopies of the trees meet and make a a sort of bushy point. But it's not really much more house-like beyond that. Oh my word, I'm just imagining Shrek's home now. (laughs) Isn't that like a tree sort of thing? It is. I I think it was more intentionally built, but yes. (laughs) Yeah, definitely not, not the same thing. But now I'm just picturing that. It, it's a surprisingly comfortable comfortable swamp house. <laughs> it looks like a oh, nice, sure. not bad place to live. So the line that I found, this is much less interesting, and we've already talked about it a lot, but <laughs> so back to the dog. And this is after Pana like, fights the the shadow version of it. And they're describing it to wave skimmer afterwards and the text so what i wrote is panda described it as a dog but it was so much more and this reads in a lot of ways to me right now um it's just really funny because like First of all, I think it speaks to just my inability to really describe what the actual, like, shadow demon thing is. And I really tried pushing this idea of, like, it being, like, a shadow of light. So typically when we see a shadow, it's, like, the absence of light. But I kind of, like, reversed it. And I don't know if I did it effectively, but, like, I tried. And so, like, there's that part of it. And then there's part of just like imagining dogs as being so much more and yeah, I don't know. I like dogs. I think with no context reading that line, most people would probably assume it was a positive thing. Probably, which it totally is. Like my dog was so much more than a dog. I mean, she was Mm -hmm. not. She was a very... She wasn't a very bright dog, but she was so lovable and like soft, and I, she was great. No, um, true words. No dog is just a dog. I agree. Yeah, she ate a lot of sandwiches. Oh, um, she stole sandwiches from us. But <laughs> <laughs> um, that's that's about the only insightful thing I have to say about that, though. <laughs> Well, I think this dog does not speak for all dogs, but my dog was the best. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, this creature is not a dog. Yes, so that's very true. Dog still amazing. We love dogs; they're the best. Even my god, dog is in. He was in a bit of trouble the other day because he bit me, but he's still really great. <laughs> He's lovable. I brought him to work yesterday, and he was he was managing everyone. It was superb. Oh. So yeah, this dog does not in the story like it's not a dog. All dogs are still good. I would say this is even speaking to the limits of our perception. We we call it a dog because we don't have a word for what it actually is. Yeah, very true. But yeah, I mean, dogs are are great. Dogs are good. But my dog was the best. I will let you perceive that. I didn't know Summer as well. Summer was a good dog. Very good girl. Yeah, and I never met your dog, so I really can't say anything. They were both good. They seemed very... I think they seemed kind of similar. Like, no, Sassy sounded... Just, like, lovable and, like, fluffy. <laughs> Now, in temperament, they were very similar. Yeah, before this becomes a giant conversation about dogs, I think <laughs> let's let's end it here. I guess, like, 
I don't know, do we want to end with like any just general overviews? What you were saying about like not even realizing per se what like like perceptions you as the author might even be bringing into the story, I think is interesting to note as well. And like what, like figuring out a way to show the interiority of a character, like Pana's perception of a dog or the perception of their, the ocean because they have no experience knowing the ocean. Um, so figuring out a way to describe something that we can't actually see, but like give clues to what the cultural context is and give clues to that own person's, you know, psychological makeup. And also, you know, be aware of your own, I guess, is what I would say. Yeah, I, I think I would go with that. I'm, I'm struggling to think of any other, like, overarching thoughts. We went in many directions. Yeah, I think just the, so like that idea and just like keeping in mind how, so even though you can't really keep in mind your own perceptions all the time, like mm -hmm. trying to at least really solidify how your world works and how the people within it potentially see everything else around it and like what do they not see too is like very important because these villagers they they don't know what the outside world is like except for having heard stories about it so how does that relationship between your own perception like your own internal perception of the world and what you hear about it how do those create this lived-in environment that you're trying to write about? Yeah, there definitely have been books or movies where you see a character just kind of spouting off a worldview that's like the author just kind of copy and pasted their, a stereotype in here and it doesn't feel, you know, it doesn't feel real. Like the beliefs that this character is acting out of or the ideas that are clearly underpinning their actions are just, you know, cut, cardboard cut out. And it doesn't feel like something that was actually built out of the world that the world or the story that this character is in. Yeah, and there are ways in which, of course, you you ultimately do end up including things from our own world. Which is fine. How that works. Yeah, it's fine. It, like, it's going to happen. Our own perception is very limited. But definitely avoiding, like what Izzy said, just copying like every single aspect yeah. uh, I of mean, our world. I wasn't necessarily saying don't copy. I was just saying, um, oh. <laughs> um, like, one thing that annoys me sometimes is when a character is written and, to be like the intolerant character. And it's just like, you know, the, the writer thinks, what, what makes an intolerant person? Someone who's sexist or someone who says mean things and, you know, throws slushies in people's faces. If you've ever seen Glee, you know what that's about. And, you know, when, there are definitely real people like that, and there's definitely many well-written characters that are like that, you know, could be described as being intolerant. But still, I mean, depending on the page time or the screen time for this character, still making sure to flesh them out as a character and not just a stand-in for the idea of what intolerance is and making their actions feel like they are genuinely like fitting into the world and not just... I needed to have a parent who gave the main character a hard time in order to move the plot forward, so they're going to say the words that... I feel like any parent would say to the main character in this situation, but then they just kind of feel forced or they don't really feel genuine to that character. They feel like, you know, wooden or they feel, you know, lacking depth, I guess, because the perception of is, uh, I guess, because the character's perception is just, you know, a very surface level perception not that you have to do intense character building for every single character but thinking of how all the pieces fit together i think can sometimes make you know a 
a character who says, I don't want you to go out after t- uh, a, a, par- a parental character being like, I don't want you to go out after 10 o'clock because it's dangerous at night. And then leaving it at that versus having a parent being like, I don't want you to go out after 10 at night to, I don't know, a teenage-aged character being like, you can't go out after 10 because you don't have a cell phone of your own and I know you won't be able to contact me um, as easily because payphones don't really exist anymore. (laughs) And in this situation, let's pretend the friend's phones aren't usable or something or... Or even, maybe it doesn't have to be a reasonable reason like that. It could even just be, you know, a reason, like, just a little context-specific, like, because I don't, I get off my shift at the gas station at 9 o'clock, and I need you to be home for when I'm, when I get back. So you can't be out past 10, which wouldn't necessarily make sense for all teenagers. Like, you can be out if your parent's back at home. But coming up, I guess, with, like, maybe... A little context or a little, you know, small details like what Peter was saying about doesn't have to be deep building or intensive time consuming, but not just, you know, cut and paste into a template. Because I do think readers will notice if you haven't given deeper thought to how a character's perceptions read. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. But definitely don't be afraid of copying real life because that's where all the best ideas come from. Like, if you want some crazy ideas on monarchies, I've been reliably told, I think, the Russian imperial dynasty of whatever, Russia went up to some really crazy stuff (laughs) during the imperial days. Okay, so thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Determination, Deliberation, and Dragons. We hope you learned a lot about perception and how to think about it and write about it. And we'll not see you because we don't see anyone, but we'll you'll hear from us in the next episode. So, so bye. <laughs> I guess we'll talk at you soon. We'll talk at you soon. Thanks for listening, and check out our Patreon in the episode's description. Oh yeah, we just started a Patreon. Please check it out. We hope you do. We hope you're (laughs) interested and can help us keep this wonderful podcast running. Yeah, I mean, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and if you do check out our Patreon, just do know that we super appreciate it, and we appreciate you. So... Thank you. your mom's birthday today oh happy birthday to your mom